0: Your career is kind of like an hourglass. It starts real broad and people tend to narrow. And I was in that narrowing phase and it felt like a prison. All I can do is that. That's what I know how to do. It wasn't until I let go of that to a certain extent and let my my gaze broaden to that other end of the hourglass that I was able to get comfortable.
1: Practically majoring in paddling with the amount of time he spent on the water during college, Daryl Knutson began adult life as a river guide. But when he stood on the banks and realized he didn't have the tools needed to make the impact he wanted, he took a different course. Once he'd honed the skills that the Rivers needed, they called him back. Find out how picking the right path in the current, while hard, can be transformative. On today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with Daryl Knudsen, and we are going to talk not so much about getting caught up in the flow, but perhaps uh, staying the course despite the fear and the unknown. And Daryl has some great perspective, I think, about that um, in a couple of avenues in life. So welcome to the program.
0: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me,
1: Leslie. Excellent. So we start these podcasts with the same two questions for our classmates, and they are, when we were in college, who were you? And as we were preparing to leave it, who did you think you were going to become?
0: Well, at Dartmouth, I was an adventurer. I made decisions mostly based on the value of the story that would result.
1: (laughs) That can be dangerous.
0: Mostly worked out well. It got me into a little bit of trouble from time to time, but I'll tell you, twenty-five or whatever many years later, it's a good lens. I came to the college expecting I would be a uh, social science focus, but took the advice to heart that I got my my first week there that hey, try something new. You know, don't 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 feel locked in. It's your first year. Try something new. So I took acting class. I just took a lot of humanities, and when I look back on my four years. I'd spent my whole time in the humanities, acting, literature. I did German, Italian, Russian, all kinds of things. I spent most of my time down on the Connecticut River. My number one activity, in some ways my true major, was paddling, canoeing, kayaking, mostly whitewater kayaking. But I also loved the flat water and doing leadership at the outdoor club.
1: What was it that drew you to the river? Did you already have the passion to be on the water? Or was that one of those first year suggestions, try something new? It was a little bit of both.
0: I'd always liked outdoor adventure. Skiing was my thing. I chose Dartmouth because of the skiing. I mean, that wasn't the only reason, but that was a narrowing lens. I ended up not doing a whole lot of skiing uh, away from the skiway where I was an instructor because it was just too expensive. But I got into kayaking. I had done a river trip uh, with my dad, three-day river trip when I was 15. And the guides said kayaking is the coolest thing ever. So when I looked at the menu of options for first-year trips, whitewater kayaking was one of them. It actually had a disclaimer saying we have very little capacity and you probably won't get in. Hmm. But I tried anyway. And uh, that's what I did for my first-year trip met some really cool people, and they encouraged me to continue, which I did. And so it was one of those things that I just stuck with.
1: Yeah, I'd say, but we'll come back to that. So the second parter, when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you were gonna become? And kind of how did that spiral into the first steps off the college?
0: Sure. Well, the short answer is I had no idea. I knew what I didn't want to do. Well, the things I didn't want to do might not have been so bad. But another thing about me is I was a bit of an iconoclast. I didn't like to go with the flow unless, I guess, it was the river flow. Hmm. <laughs> but I knew I didn't. It didn't appeal to me to to do the things that it seemed most folks in my graduating class were doing, which was either go into the corporate recruiting route, so investment banking, management consulting, the professional route of lawyer, doctor, or the academic route of getting a graduate degree. And I decided that, well, it served me well in life when, I've, when I haven't known what to do, if I focus in on what I'm excited and passionate about until I figure it out. So I said, I love being on the river. And funny, short little anecdote is: I was a comparative literature major, which at the time was a competitive. You had to apply for it. There were only four of us in the major for my class, and everyone else went on to an academic career, as far as I know. the The professor who was our guide had us all talk about well, what are you going to do when you when you graduate. We're going around the table. Well, I am going to go to grad school in English, and I am going to focus on you know James Joyce and the color white. And I love literature, but I I was sort of like, okay, I don't really know what that means. And it got to me and I said, well, I'm going to go be a river guide down in the south. I'm going to be a raft guide and hopefully a kayak instructor. And I'll see where that takes me. And the professor, uh, who knows what she was thinking at the time, but my understanding was that maybe she didn't want everyone else doing this, said in a bit of a sassy way, well, it will probably take you down the river. (laughs) Wow, and there was a little bit of a deterrent but I said well maybe it will maybe it won't but that's going to be my next step and I guess I can put a little more color on it I was profiled as one of four graduates in the graduation newspaper or whatever given out at commencement as people doing interesting things and so I said I'm going to go be a raft guide and my idea at the time was if I like it maybe I'll start a business that's a rafting sort of kayaking company blending my cultural knowledge and love of literature and art in Europe. And I'll, I'll put together a travel company that takes people to Europe who want to do both. They don't just want to go to museums. They don't just want to go see nature. They want to do both. And that was sort of the ultimate destination I had in my head. But if you're, I should try it out first and see if I even like doing this professionally.
1: Mm-hmm. And you did.
0: I did it, but I didn't like it. <laughs> no, I I did like it. I liked it for a while. I enjoyed being a RAF guy, you know, learned a ton of stuff and had a great time. And every day I felt like that was a great day. I enjoyed being with those people. Maybe I made their lives a little better. You know, maybe it was their one vacation for the year. I liked all that. But when I sat back and thought about it, I thought, gosh, in 25 years, which I guess is now, is this what I still want to be doing? At the time, I decided that business idea didn't, it just wasn't making my heart sing anymore. But I did that for about four years and I knew I needed to do something different yeah. and I didn't know what.
1: There come, there come all those pivot times and the first, this first one is kind of the one to get you off the water for a while. So how do you, how do you make that decision and, wh- and what is it and what's the next couple of steps?
0: So my first attempt to get off the water wasn't entirely successful. The first decision was to take a humility pill, I guess. So I went to Temping. I was a bit stuck, and an opportunity came along to go to Panama on a whitewater trip. Along with three others who are good boaters, shall we say, we got invited by the king of the Nassau people in Panama to explore the feasibility of his tribe's river for commercial rafting because they had learned it was slated for a dam and their traditional homelands would be flooded. Mm. And there was some precedent in Chile for kind of having international adventure tourism to raise awareness and potentially be some kind of economic offset as well. So I went down there. It's a great long story, but to sum it up, we were so deep in the jungle, drove for two days, took a boat, to a landlocked area, drove another few hours to the end of the road, took a outboard dugout canoe two hours up the rapids to the Palace of the King, negotiated to get a team together with us, went four days up the river, dragging 800-pound dugout canoes with all our gear, got to the top, and it had been wild. There had been a deadly poisonous snake in camp that you know they killed because I guess it's very territorial, and that's what they do. At one point, they said one of my friends couldn't sleep where he was sleeping in his hammock. And I said, well, why? And the, the person said, well, because I can't shoot that far if a jaguar comes tonight. And they had sentries posted all night long. We got to the top, and there were 10 of them looking at me, and they said, mm-hmm. Daryl, can you help us? Daryl and team, not just me. Mm-hmm. Can you help us? And we just had decided it just wasn't feasible. It was just too dangerous. It was too remote. I've looked back on that moment since and thought of the quote by Archimedes, if you give me a lever long enough in the right place to stand, I will move the earth. And I thought on that moment and said, you know, the way I felt was that I had no levers. I had a liberal arts degree, which is wonderful. And in hindsight, I'm so glad I have, but it didn't give me real practical skills at the time. And I was standing in the middle of a jungle, not just literally, but figuratively. I had no connections, no access to any way to help these people. And that was the first big contributor to my deciding to make a career in business and human rights and international trade, focused on human rights issues and trying to figure out how I could actually have some levers and some good places to stand.
1: Yeah, well, that is formative for sure. And yet I think it probably took real fortitude over those, ye- those ensuing years to kind of bring yourself back to that place mentally when you need to do that work for such disparate kinds of organizations, some which are probably really worth that toil and some that you're like, Oh, I thought it was something different. So that, that was like the bulk of your career though had, had been. That kind of work with a, a number of different industries organizations, um, kind of show us the gamut of, of the the experiences that you had
0: sure, sure well, I'll plant one more seed because I think one of the things I've emphasized so far is this idea of well what am I passionate about and, and trying to get away from what do, I, what do i what do I feel expected to do right so that's mm-hmm. that one I think I've just <laughs> given a pretty good window into the other one was following my personal values. After I got back from Panama, my mom had been sick with cancer for quite a while, and she was kind of getting to the the end of the road there. And at the time, it felt like I was making a lot of progress with my temping work and starting to get into some people being aware that I had these language skills and I'm starting to get some traction with some companies. But I just decided I needed to move home. And it felt like I was giving up on my career for family. Turned out that wasn't what happened, but that's how it felt. I went home to New Hampshire where my my parents had retired to and spent time there. So while I was there, I met my wife and she introduced me to this guy who was working on what is called a socially responsible investment fund. These are a lot more prominent now, but at the time there were not as many of them. It was a mutual fund which had certain stated values and basically did two things. One was they avoided investing in companies that didn't pass the screens we had for social and environmental issues. And the second thing, which was actually more impactful, I think, is that we would use our position as shareholders to engage with senior corporate executives and boards around issues of social importance, often together with other mutual funds. So in that role, for example, I got to come out to the Bay Area for the first time and I presented a shareholder resolution for a $9 billion pharmaceutical company whose board were all white men saying, hey, this isn't the future. You're hurting yourself for all the, And I laid out all the reasons and met the CEO and all that, all that good stuff. So the only way that happens is if you're a shareholder. Yeah. So I got into that and I guess I left out the part where I got hired to work there. You know, I went to informational interview with him and uh, he said, well, actually, we're hiring. And I said, great, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring because I'm really interested in this new idea called globalization, (laughs) uh, which was was sort of this new term going around at the time, (laughs) economic and cultural and technical globalization. And there was a big heady debate in the late 90s about whether that was good or bad. You know there were the protests in Seattle, the World Trade Organization, and flashpoints, and and people were for the first time starting to question the wisdom of a lot of the institutions that had been built after World War II and whether they were really serving the people and serving the planet. And my view was at the time, you know, 24 whatever, that I think that this can be a great force for development and human rights, but that we need to make sure that the negative human rights and environmental impacts of all this economic globalization are contained and mitigated and, and hopefully steer everything toward a positive direction on human rights and the environment. And so you know, the idea of working for a socially responsible investment fund fit right into that, and I started down that path. So I got my foot in the door there, decided I wanted to go back to graduate school, decided I wanted to focus on business and human rights. That is a term of art now, it's a whole field, but at the time it it wasn't really, there were people working in it, but you know, you wouldn't have known it if you weren't looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Laura and I were both going back to grad school, we made the choice to go to grad schools near each other. They were both our second choice schools, but we said, let's give this relationship a shot. And for me, and I think she would agree for her too, it ended up being the right school. So I, I went to Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, got my master's in international affairs, designed my own concentration around business and human rights. And you know, getting on toward graduation, I was having another one of those crises of, of confidence. What am I gonna do? I knew what I wanted to do. I built my whole concentration around the idea of doing this business in human rights. At the time, there were kind of two tracks people would take. There's a lot more now. But one was working on supply chain labor issues. And the other was working on extractive issues. So oil and gas and how that impacts local communities who get displaced. Quite similar issues, actually, to what goes on with Dan's, which is what I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I want to do the labor side with the supply chain that seems more up my alley, but there's really not much happening. There's only a few companies doing this, this kind of work. And two days before graduation, a job was posted to work at Gap Inc., the clothing company, which for those who don't know, also includes Old Navy and Banana Republic. They were hiring for someone on their social responsibility team, which is exactly what I wanted to be doing, uh, working on labor issues in in supply chains. And I said, that is my next job. I have to get that job. And I started lobbying furiously and working my network to get there and got the job. So that's how I started at Gap, where I spent over a decade.
1: Yeah. For somebody who was pulled into the jungle, here you are in like mainstream US commerce. The biggest company that we, I mean, I lived in San Francisco at that time. Gap was everywhere, headquartered there, but like, Gap was everywhere and had, I guess, the foresight to really put some muscle behind this really burgeoning idea of social response, corporate responsibility, which others weren't, right?
0: Yeah, it's true. And it's, you know, I, I think you asked who I was in, in college. I'll, I'll jump back to that for a second, because here I am. You're right. Gap was a big deal. They won marketer of the year in 1998 um, for the, you know, in Maybe maybe some people in our class will remember there's this ad with the swing dancing. I
1: was going to say it. I totally remember the khaki yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right?
0: And and for those who don't remember it, that is where the filming technique was designed, was on that commercial that was used in the Matrix series. That's right. right. Yeah. Anyway, pretty interesting. So they got Wall Street dressed up in business casual, which would never been done before. I mean, it was a real cultural force. Meanwhile, when I was at Dartmouth... You know, my my wife laughs at me now. My my girlfriend at the time um, said, "Hey, you know, you should maybe find some better clothes. We're gonna go. We're gonna go to the the Gap." And I was like, "What's the Gap?" (laughs) Right. Right.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You're back in the jungle. I mean, who needs the Gap in the
0: jungle? (laughs) When I showed up at Gap, I you know, I think most of my clothes were were stuff that I still had left over from high school that my mom had bought for me. I just didn't care about any of that stuff. And now suddenly, I'm in this headquarters environment. But yeah, the company decided they they were going to invest in this area. And like many companies, it didn't come out of foresight so much as it was a reaction to being Mm -hmm. criticized. And because Gap was so big, in my view, because Gap was so big, they became emblematic of all of the problematic issues with labor, ones I just studied, that surfaced when you have a global supply chain. You know, this was about 10 years after the apparel industry pretty much left the United States. It was only in the early 90s that things started to get offshore, And so you ended up with all kinds of issues around, you know, your factories that aren't your factories. They're contractors, you're buying from them. They're operating in countries where governance is weak and enforcement is weak. And the culture was... Not to put a lot of emphasis on labor rights and labor protections. And so stories start emerging, exposés saying, hey, you know, you used to produce in the United States where we have labor protections. Now you're producing in Cambodia, in Bangladesh, in these places where there aren't labor protections. And that's how you're making your money. And you should be held to account for that. And so the company started to, you know, first their reaction was, well, that's not how we're making our money by exploiting people. We're making our money because there's different levels of development and this is good, you know, the whole economic argument. But some of the executives were foresighted enough when they got some complaints to go down and investigate. uh, One of the people I knew went down to El Salvador and, and it was terrible in their words. It was terrible. It wasn't just terrible. It was oppressive. People's lives were at risk. People's lives were being threatened for trying to form unions. And the company said, we got to do something about this. And so they started and built their their department to start trying to use their power as a buyer of clothing, $5 billion a year in clothing, to say, well, if you want to make clothes for us, you have to follow certain standards. And these are the standards. And they're based on international law, labor law. And we're going to come inspect And if you don't do it, we're going to cut you. And Gap, unlike many companies, walked the walk on this stuff. They continued to be criticized because people didn't know what they were doing Mm. and had decided, you know, we're going to talk to our critics now. We're going to ask them how we could do better. We're going to build relationships and we need a team to help support that. And I was on that Vanguard team to bring the perspectives of civil society into the company Influence corporate policy. And then over time, over the course of the decade, we realized that we needed much more than just our power as purchasers influencing individual factories. We needed to influence the context in which these factories were working, which meant engaging with governments. It meant engaging with international organizations like the United Nations and the International Labor Organization. It meant influencing our trade associations to take progressive stands. I got personally involved in helping shape the UN at a small level, but uh, there's the UN framework for business and human rights that emerged. Got to work in Bangladesh where there were horrific fires, people died. And you know out of that crucible came huge labor reforms and investment in infrastructure to make buildings safer, which I was on the front lines of helping negotiate in small groups. When Burma opened up, now they're in a bad place again. But in the early you know 2010s, um, the Obama administration asked us to go in and source in Burma because they said, look, we've, this country has been sanctioned for so long under the, under the junta and they're taking reforms and we want business to come in. And I designed our social and environmental risk. If it, Inside the company, it was our social environmental risk strategy. <laughs> Outside the company, it was our human rights approach to sourcing. And for me, it was both. And was sitting around a table with executives from other industries, talking to our government and theirs about what would good look like? How can we set up an environment where business isn't just being extractive and exploitative, but adding value? How do we make sure we don't get it wrong? So let's look at Bangladesh was a total catastrophe because there were no, no one was thinking about that at the time. It was just about the jobs. As the industry came in there. How do we make sure these problems don't happen in the first place? And it was it was wild. It was so cool. And you know, some of it worked, some of it didn't. I'm proud of some of the things we accomplished, like ending government orchestrated forced child labor in Uzbekistan. You can sink your teeth into that. Government orchestrated forced child labor. It's pretty much gone. Now mm-hmm. we're working on forced labor, and that's getting better too. And a lot of things, which frankly when I was saying, hey, company, we ought to get involved in this. We have this big bully pulpit. We're an iconic brand. They said, that seems like it's out of our lane.
1: Yeah.
0: That seems too big to solve. And I said, well, but we got to try. Mm-hmm. And some of those things, looking back, did get solved. And a lot of them got moved forward. And it was, a, it was an amazing experience.
1: Because, I mean, you really, it was like two sides of it. You, you were part of the entire life cycle of an organization's CSR journey, (laughs) at the same time that you were at the table of a global movement, industry agnostic. And so the depth and breadth of that experience really kind of set you up to think about so many different kinds of human rights related environmental issues that you were able to kind of pivot and and do some other things. But let's kind of fast forward to how that plays into now. and i think again it comes back to the river and ledyard right um so tell Absolutely. me about tell me about the moment um mm-hmm. that kind of gave you this most recent pivot for you
0: sure sure well i left gap about well almost 6 years ago now you know the company needed to focus on aspects of their social responsibility which were different from what i had deep expertise in so you know we parted ways and i i was back at one of these moments and I didn't know what to do next. And look, I want to, I just want to say this directly. Right now, I feel like I'm in the perfect job. And part of the skill that you have to learn over the course of a career is how to weave a narrative <laughs> right. about, you know, how everything inexorably was leading to this moment.
1: And in hindsight, it feels like it. It can
0: if you tell yourself that enough.
1: Mm-hmm. But, I, but I want people to
0: hear, particularly the younger folks listening, is It definitely didn't feel that way at the time. And there were so many moments where I had no idea where I was going, what was around the bend, how I was going to get there. And, you know, sometimes those were pretty bleak times, pretty bleak times. So, you know, I leaned on some of my friends and a lot of inner work to get through them. But that perseverance, I I hope the takeaway is that with that perseverance, centering on your values, centering on what matters to you, you're going to end up okay and in a, in a place that you feel good about. And, and that's been the case for me, but it certainly hasn't been clear along the way. So I found myself in a moment of what do I do next? Because even at that time, six years ago, there weren't many companies that we're doing the work at that level as what Gap had been doing. So it wasn't a matter of just shifting into another company doing the same thing. There were jobs, but they weren't the same. And you know, I was stuck in the Bay Area too because my wife has a career and that was going quite well. So I started. Well, first I just took some time for myself. Then I took some some time and I, I got some good advice to try consulting, which I actually really enjoyed. And it helped widen my horizons. So also something people may find as they go through their careers or your career is kind of like an hourglass. It starts real broad and you tend to, it doesn't have to be true for everybody, but people tend to narrow. And I was in that narrowing phase and it felt like a prison. Like all I can do is that. That's what I know how to do. I don't know how to do anything else. And by the way, now I've got a mortgage and I've got kids and I've got a lot of expenses and I got to go earn money. It wasn't until I let go of that to a certain extent and let my my gaze broaden to that other end of the hourglass that I was able to get comfortable again and find my passion. And, and part of that was the consulting. So suddenly I realized that people valued my advice in other industries, even though I was nowhere near as expert in those industries as I was in my own. People valued my advice on things that had I been in my own company, I would have said, Lakshmi knows how to do that better. She's the one you should be talking to. That's That's really Ernest Wong's expertise, not mine. You know, I was very specialized. But at the end of the day, I knew a lot more about this stuff than most. And so I started finding people who valued my perspective and all on social responsibility. Then, and it does come back to Ledyard, I had the chance to go down to Peru for Ledyard's 100th anniversary with an alumni student delegation trip, whatever. And we paddled the headwaters of the Amazon portion of the river is called the Marañón. We spent two weeks on the river. And before I went, I looked into this river a little bit and learned it was slated for some dams, just like the one in Panama and that I'd been on 20 years before. And I said, well, okay, back then I didn't have any help, levers, any, levers, any <laughs> I was not standing in the right place, but now I actually have a lot more experience under my belt. So I, I looked this up. I found an organization called International Rivers, which is where I'm now the executive director. And I saw that they were doing some work on the on the Marañón River. I also saw that they have done some work on the river in Panama. I'd been on, oh. and so I decided, well, I'm going to reach out to them. So I reached out to their executive director, interim executive director, and to the head of Latin America. And I said, hey, I'm going down on this river. Here's my background can I be of any help? It it seems to me, it might be hard for you all to get to these places. And it seems to me, maybe doing some interviews of people and taking some photos might be useful, but mm-hmm. you tell me. And they said, that sounds amazing. So I went down there, did all this stuff, had an amazing trip, met lots of new friends from from Dartmouth. And then we got to the end of it. And I came back to talk to International Rivers about here's what I found and And I learned that they were hiring for an executive director, and I said, "Oh my goodness, that is the perfect role for me." It, I, I wanted to get into senior management at nonprofits. That was sort of one of my three areas that I was tracking toward. It brought together everything I cared about in terms of human rights, environment, and rivers, which Uh I've (laughs) passionate for thirty years and would take advantage of my experience in management to, you know, across the globe. We, we actually have staff on six continents, not Antarctica. You know, Most of the work we do is focused in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, headquartered here in Oakland and, and Brazil and South Africa and Bangkok. So it really just brought together so many things that I built experience in, and I, I ended up getting the job, and I couldn't be more thrilled.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, often you can, as you said, you know, you weave your narrative from a place of hindsight and you you make it work. There is no shoehorning necessary in this. It feels like it really is the culmination of all of this thought work and inner work and river work. And yeah, I mean, do you pinch yourself now?
0: I do when I zoom out like this. um, and, and It's good to do so. You know, like any job, there there are challenges and, and problems to solve, and
1: they can get quite well, forced. That's right. That's why you're there. I mean, that's why I'm there, was, right? Right. But
0: absolutely, pinching myself is is something I I do.
1: That is great. So, can you think back to that freshly, you know, headed off the college Daryl, and here I am. I'm going to go see if I like this thing. Could he have imagined this for you?
0: When I think back to myself back then. I probably wouldn't, of course, I couldn't have imagined being in this role and its particularities. But I did have the kernels of all these dreams, wanting to adventure the globe, to go in and meet our allies, for example, in the Amazon and the indigenous tribes that, that we're supporting in their fight to protect their rivers from dams and pollution. That is the kind of thing I would have dreamed of doing. And that's the kind of thing, that's why I got into expedition kayaking in the first place, was to go to places like that. I dreamed, you know, when I went back for international affairs school, I thought, gosh, it would be really neat to be able to go to Geneva and, you know, work at the United Nations and influence global policy. And that seems like something I'd never be able to do. But gosh, that would be wonderful. I've gotten to do that. I've been to Geneva. I've been a delegate for the U.S. delegation to the International Labor Organization there. And thank goodness for my friend, Joey Hood, who I think was also a, a guest on, on your yeah. show, who encouraged me at some difficult times to pursue those dreams. I don't think I would have envisioned myself, because I couldn't have dreamed up a job so perfect, though, running an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect rivers and defend the human rights of communities that depend on them globally, and that I would have the skills and passion necessary to get that job and hopefully do it well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah I mean and I really hope that you savor that and and are able to i guess I should say paddle through that or something um and and really enjoy that ride but i I do hope that you don't stop dreaming the new dreams because just because this is perfect doesn't mean there's not another another perfect or another something down the road so we will all look forward to seeing what that is and i'm glad that you were able to share the story with us today
0: well i will close with a plug because this is part of my job If anything I said about International Rivers is exciting to folks and you want to support the global struggle for healthy and wild rivers and and human rights of the people who who live along them and depend on them, we would be so grateful for your donation at internationalrivers.org.
1: Thanks so much, Daryl.
0: Thank you, Leslie.
1: That was Daryl Knutson, Executive Director of International Rivers, an organization devoted to protecting rivers and defending the rights of the communities that depend on them. The tailor-made role allows him to meld his love of rivers with two decades of experience in human rights and global corporate responsibility honed during his time at Gap, Inc. Find out more about Daryl's work at internationalrivers.org. And find more stories with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, at roadstakenshow.com or on the next episode of Roads Taken.